0: Some college students call it a rite of passage, you're no longer at home under the watchful eye of your parents and you love that newfound freedom. You're not old enough to legally drink alcohol, but you can easily get a fake ID. And many college towns are known for their special alcohol-related celebrations. Take for example here in Ohio. Halloween is party time in Athens for Ohio University students and friends. And in Oxford, Green Beer Day is the toast of the town for Miami University students the Thursday before spring break every year. Some parents point out that's okay, they drank a lot while they were in college, so what's the big deal? But is the problem larger than that today? Should we be concerned about binge drinking or the long-term impacts of alcohol abuse? I'm Bob Long, we welcome you to another edition of Stats and Stories, a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And our topic today is alcohol abuse among college students, a major public health concern worldwide. To prepare us for our discussion today, Stats and Stories reporter Emily Hanhart talked with two researchers who have studied alcohol abuse among college students.
1: It's no surprise that binge drinking has taken hold of students on college campuses nationwide. Associate Professor of Kinesiology and Health Rosemarie Ward has conducted research on this topic of alcohol abuse on Miami's campus for 12 years. She says Miami students are well above the national average in terms of number of students who drink on a regular basis.
2: We have rates here of alcohol abuse across all years in school that are above national rates. So using national studies from Wexler, who's up in Harvard, about 41% of students binge drink. Well, here at Miami, we're closer to 60%. So that that's a substantial amount.
1: Miami recently created an alcohol task force to assess how to deal with these alcohol-related issues on campus, such as tailgating at football games. Ward's research examines how Miami's academic policies mesh with campus culture.
2: There is a clear relationship between time of your first class and how much you drink, and the difficulty of your class. That was the other part of my paper that I wrote is that you could have early classes, but if they don't take attendance, or you don't need to be there, or it's really easy, you're still going to drink. So it's not just the time in the classes, you kind of sculpt your class load to fit your social life.
1: Miami has tried to add more Friday classes to model other universities that have tried to combat excessive binge drinking, and has also pushed back 8 a.m. classes by 30 minutes. Ward says Miami and other public universities nationwide have shaped their class structure to enable certain behaviors that might lead to habitual drinking.
2: There's no other part of your life where you can consistently or even occasionally show up and be buzzed or hungover and still have that job. So we kind of enable a lot of things in the academic culture that are not just unique to Miami that kind of facilitate this. And so it's looking at those structures and looking at that system and seeing can we shift it a little bit and maybe put alcohol in certain controlled situations, model good drinking, and then try to put other systems in to kind of keep it from spreading.
1: A researcher at the Center for Alcohol and Addiction Studies at Brown University has dedicated his career to studying the motivations of students with alcohol-related issues. Brian Borsari's most recent study involved multiple trials of 500 students at different universities who violated campus alcohol policies. After their first violation, these students participated in a brief advising session about drinking and their intake levels. After six weeks, students who violated their university's policies a second time were given a more intensive motivational intervention. Borsari says the students who participated in the second session saw successful results. When we
3: followed those students out for nine months, we noticed that the people that got the brief motivational intervention compared to nothing, when assessment only controlled, that they reduced um, the alcohol-related problems that they had experienced.
1: Borsari also says the purpose of the interventions is to see what the motivations to drink might be for the students.
3: It seems that sometimes during these sessions you can say something, or comment on something or elicit something consistently that might facilitate
1: change. Forsari hopes that through further research, the issue of alcohol abuse on college campuses will diminish over time.
3: You know, my interventions and others, they don't get drinking to zero for the most part, or problems to zero, but there is a significant reduction. And if you can multiply that, taking a public health view, over tens or hundreds of thousands of students, that those you know, interventions could have significant effect if implemented well.
1: Rosemarie Ward believes that this issue can be tackled at Miami. Nonetheless, she's surprised that there haven't been more alcohol-related tragedies in the 12 years that she's been conducting research.
2: You can drink without being so risky where we have to worry about your life. And that's scary, is that every day there's the potential for someone to die on this campus. I don't like that. For
1: Stats and Stories, I'm Emily Hanhart.
0: Joining me for stats and stories today for our discussion of alcohol abuse among college students, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, Our media, journalism, and film department chair, Richard Campbell, is unable to be with us today, but we're very pleased to welcome our special guest, Nick Horton. Nick is a professor of statistics at Amherst College. He's been involved in studies on a number of substance abuse issues and has also looked at a web-based screening and intervention program related to alcohol abuse. Nick, we welcome you to the show today.
4: It's great to be here, Bob.
0: Let's talk first of all about how you... Personally, got interested in this whole area of substance abuse. Well, my background as an undergraduate was in
4: psychology, and you know my interest in data and trying to make sense of it led me to pursue a graduate degree in biostatistics. Um, my work there uh, led me to take some courses in a variety of areas related to psychiatric epidemiology and substance abuse research. I had the pleasure of taking a class from Henry Wexler, who was the founder of the National College Alcohol Study, which really gave us a much clearer sense of the impact of drinking on college campuses, both for the drinkers and for those uh, other students who weren't drinking. Um, I continued my work and and headed off to Boston Medical Center where I completed a training program for faculty on substance abuse prevention. Um, And then I've been teaching at um, liberal arts colleges and collaborating with faculty at those institutions on studies of college athletes, um, how housing is set up in, in colleges and how that affects drinking, and more recently on these studies in Australia and New Zealand on electronic approaches web-based approaches to decrease college drinking
0: before we get into some of the research you've done i think a lot of people when they think about the alcohol abuse they think about american colleges but what what we're talking about is more of a, a global type of issue
4: no it's certainly certainly true that the that the issues of of drinking and uh drinking in university or drinking for young people is critically important public health concern. Uh it's a chronic issue that has a tremendous impact on on society. There's huge costs, both in terms of of of, of family violence and lost income and 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 the like. Um so it really is important. The research has shown that the earlier people get involved in drinking, Uh, at a heavy level, the more likely they are to be alcohol dependent later on in life. So this is really an issue that's not just a U.S. problem.
0: Let's go to John Baylor for the next question.
3: So a natural question when you think about this. Have you seen or does the literature suggest that there might be patterns in the amount of alcohol abuse that's occurring? Is it going up? Is it going down? Is it relatively stable over time?
4: Um, One of the things we see from the research in terms of drinking is that there is a lot of it. It d- does tend to be you know, diverse and you can actually have an impact in terms of prevention and intervention. So there are some hopeful aspects. And one of the areas that I think has been more promising, partly because it's cheap, are these ESBI approaches, the electronic screening and behavioral intervention, where students can be provided with just more information about their drinking. Um, That has been really shown to be useful in certain approaches, in particular where you showed students how much they're spending on alcohol, because that adds up in a way. Uh, And there's a lot of research that shows that if the cost of alcohol is higher, students will tend to drink less. And so thinking about these behavioral changes are hard, but there are approaches that can have an impact.
0: Very good. As far as... Sort of, I know one of the studies you were talking about was involving students, I believe, in New Zealand and Australia. And I wanted to kind of have you go into that. Why uh, why picking, I think it was seven universities in New Zealand for one of the studies that you were involved in?
4: Well, one of the things that's really important thinking about this ESPI is – whether or not it can actually be rolled out on a more systematic way, so those seven universities in New Zealand are all of the universities in New Zealand, so this was a nationwide attempt to see if it was possible to decrease drinking in that in that manner. The way the study works is that all the students at those universities were offered a chance to participate. They completed a questionnaire, something called the audit, to try to identify people who are at moderate or higher levels of drinking. Those are the ones most perceived to be at risk. And so about 3,400 of those students ended up being eligible for the study and were then immediately randomized to one of two conditions. One was to just, you know, do this baseline screening and then, you know, be followed up after one and three months. The other group received a targeted website, which opened up right at the end of that screening, which had multiple tabs to it that compared, you know, their probability based on their responses to these questions, probability of getting into a car crash or having some other consequences due to drinking, to really see how they're drinking compared with other students at the university. This idea of social norms is shown to be very effective. And as I said, a mention of how much they were spending on drinking in every given year. So that was the intervention, which is very straightforward and cheap. It's just popping up a website. They were then followed up after, you know, a couple of months, and what was seen in that study is that, you know, this is not going to make an earth-shattering kind of big difference, but it seemed to be associated with modest decreases, 10 percent decreases in the duration of drinking or the number of times they drink per week, the volume consumed, which seemed like part of an answer to be thinking more holistically about their drinking.
3: So this was just a a single intervention, a single short intervention following this?
4: Yes. So just that kind of one shot with the website, there was no follow up. And it seemed like it had some modest, you know, improvements. So we're,
3: we're as part of the discussion, they consider what could be done in the future as additional additional electronic interventions that might reinforce this message? You know, is there a strategy for which that might be
4: explored? So a lot of the other research that's going on is smaller scale. It's not going to be national type um, interventions. Um, But really thinking about this pattern, like where is this college drinking coming from? Clearly in the U.S. and overseas, it starts earlier in life. Middle school, high school is kind of a key time when patterns of adulthood are set. So looking at drinking games. Uh, for example. Looking at how um, different um, groups on campuses are are drinking, what kind of effect there might be for, say, athletic teams versus versus others. Uh, thinking about the role of acculturation for, for recent immigrants to the country. But to really think about ways that we could screen and identify people most at risk and then really target those folks for particular follow-up. That approach, when we think about statistics in this area, you know, there are clinical trials, which are great to do, but there's a whole bunch of observational studies which may need to predate that to understand what questions, what approaches might be feasible, what where we might see most impact.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And we're focusing today on alcohol abuse among our young people, a major public health concern not only here in the United States, but worldwide. I'm Bob Long, our regular panelist that's with us today, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Paler, and our special guest today, Nick Horton, a professor of statistics at Amherst College, who has specialized in in studying this whole issue of substance abuse. Um, Nick, kind of going on from there, we, we talked about New Zealand only having seven universities. How much more difficult though is it when you're dealing with a country like ours where in the state of Ohio alone you've got you know, I don't know how many public and private universities but and just across the country thousands of different schools and they all are having similar kinds of, of issues. So how much, how much more difficult is it here in this country to deal with this issue?
4: Well, I do think it is a challenge just given the heterogeneity of our, of our systems and structures. Um, a lot of the research that's happening in this area is coordinated through the National Institutes for Health, the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, has put a key focus on prevention and intervention, because there's a lot of indications that early action can make a difference, that if you wait till someone has full-blown alcohol dependence in in adulthood, it's too late. It really is very difficult to treat at that that point. And so that has really led statisticians to be involved in the design of these studies to try to identify those at high risk, to identify creative solutions that can help to, you know, to ameliorate the problem. John Baylor.
3: Can you talk a little bit about how statistics has been used to maybe uh, assist with the screening and identification? What What are some of the strategies that, that are used to, dental, to use these data to try to make these types of identifi- identifications?
4: Well, one of the areas where statistics makes a, a, a plays a key role is in the psychometrics of screening. How do we identify a couple of questions that may be easy and straightforward to identify those at risk? And there are a series of these that have been put together. This audit I mentioned earlier was one where well, there's essentially an eight item scale that tries to you know determine where you know where there are problems. There's another four item scale called the cage um, and the cage you know to give an example is you know has anyone encouraged you to cut down on your on your drinking? and that's kind of if someone says a yes to that and one of the other um another one is an eye opener do you need a drink in the morning to get going those are kind of getting two of those four is indica- indicative of the of problems and so trying to come up with a, a a measure that is both you know highly specific and also sensitive um to be able to kind of find the right people at risk in an easy manner is an area where statistics plays a big role
0: as far as on college campuses, I know, for example, uh, Miami University has a disciplinary board, as all universities do, and, and many times some of the issues they're dealing with have something to do with a, a problem they're seeing a student with that, that's alcohol-related. When, when you're talking about the at-risk population, is that one of the places where you can go sometimes to find, well, who are the students we really need to, uh, to talk to, to to address these kind of concerns? So
4: I think that area of how we deal with disciplinary action Mm -hmm. in this area, that policy related to, you know, once we identify a student, what's the best approach? Uh, There's a lot of schools that have actually instituted amnesty programs that they want to make sure if there's a situation where they're underage drinking and someone's at risk – that we get that person into medical care so they don't you know, die or have serious consequences. And I think there's some indication that that's an important strategy to protect students. Uh, my colleague at Brown University, Brian Bersari, has been very active in their programs that are essentially like that intervention. You, you have a situation that's a disciplinary problem. Let's put that person into a much more intensive uh, treatment program. And that can often have a very positive outcome where the disciplinary part wouldn't really kind of treat the underlying problem. And so this is an area where it's important for us to be doing randomized trials to really get a sense at these institutions of what the right approaches are. Um, and that's an area where st- statisticians play a big role. So just one
3: thing that people might be interested in, the use of words like randomized trial is something that might be – a you know, new to folks. So, could you expand a little bit about what what do you mean by randomized or what do you mean by randomized trials?
4: So, you know, we think about randomized trials typically in terms of a drug. There's a new drug we want to test. We compare it to kind of a standard treatment. That's a blinded condition where the the the, the patient, the subject in that case, doesn't know which one they're getting. The investigator doesn't know either, but they're followed later on and we see which is the more effective, which one has the the, the worst side effects. Um, in the situation that, that I'm talking about, it's a little bit more subtle. You might have a situation where someone comes into their disciplinary hearing and they're offered the opportunity to be part of a trial of an innovative, you know, innovative new approach to be able to Um, to treat their their issues. And they would then be randomized to either perhaps standard disciplinary or this other kind of treatment program where their disciplinary stuff might be held off. There are a lot of challenges to this because it's no longer blinded. People know which treatment they're in. But it's important then to still to be able to think about how to, to really reconstruct what it is that actually had the impact later on, which approaches are effective, which ones are not, and the cost effectiveness of those approaches to, as we try to tackle this problem. So as a quick follow-up, so do you worry about
3: selection bias? I mean when you talked about the students in New Zealand, and you they, they only got the ones that were willing to participate. When you think about these other trials, so if someone's coming in for disciplinary hearing and disciplinary action potentially, they're they're opting in or opting out of these things. Do you, do you worry about? I mean, how do you deal with this potential selection bias of the
4: characteristics of people that are in your studies? Well, I think that's one of the important parts of the randomized component to this. It's true that the students. Who were, who were participants in the New Zealand and Australian studies were the ones who were willing to participate. But they were still randomized into two groups. And so there may have been some bias or some questions about whether we can generalize to all students. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's still possible for us to be comparing the groups that were randomized to this web-based screening and those not. Um, but it is an important issue for us to keep in mind. Another important issue, you know, we we live in, a, in an imperfect world. Um, and you would imagine missing data arises a lot when you're studying folks who are involved with substance abuse. And that's an important area where we were only able to follow up about 85% of those Australian and New Zealand students. And so the question might arise whether or not the non-respondents were systematically different from the respondents. And there's been a lot of innovative approaches to be able to reach out to try to minimize that missingness, try to get one answer from them. Are you drinking or not? Might be that one simple question. Um, But it's it's an important role for statisticians as part of this research team to help in really understanding what conclusions you can make.
0: I know another issue when you're dealing with substance abuse is just the personal denial. A lot of times that people Go through. They don't want to admit they have a problem. How does that impact, too, the kinds of things you're trying to ask them to try to get them to give you the honest responses that that you need?
4: Well, this is another area where where survey design and statisticians have been, have been very involved. Um, prior to this work with with students, I worked with um, folks coming out of a detox center. In Boston. And again, these are very seriously um, alcohol and substance involved folks. And it's interesting because that was a study where we enrolled them in the detox, which is a depressing place, just like in the movies. You might anticipate they're in there for three to seven days to dry out and start proceeding on the next stage of their their life. If you ask them at that point whether they've been in detox before in the last six months— you get an answer from them about the number of times they were in detox. We were able to compare that to the billing records for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to see what how those corresponded. And those, those reports were actually fairly good. If you then followed up with these same people six months later and said, how often have you been in detox since we met, since you were enrolled in this study, now you're in a white hospital room. There's clear kind of social desirability bias that arises in that situation. Their answers were much less accurate when compared to the same information. And so this concern about self-report bias is an important one to be thinking about. And there are approaches that people have come up with in the same way you ask people not, did you vote last time? You ask them, what polling station did you vote at last time? And it turns out that will elicit a much more honest response. But again, these are all important, what I call non-sampling error questions that we need to keep in mind. You're
0: listening to Stats and Stories, and we're focusing today on alcohol abuse, substance abuse among students at... um major public health concern, not only here in America, but worldwide. I'm Bob Long. Again, our regular panelist with us today, Miami University Statistics Department Chair, John Baylor. Our media journalism and film colleague, Richard Campbell, was unable to be with us today. And our special guest, we're very pleased to have Amherst College Statistics Professor Nick Horton. And Nick has been involved in, in studying uh, web-based screening and intervention programs and many other uh, studies related to to substance abuse. John Baylor, go back to you for the next question.
3: So can you tell us a little about who else is on your research team that, that's investigating these problems? So the
4: research teams really are diverse. It, it's, you know, st- statistics is a team science, and thinking about improving the health of populations in this manner is also uh, true as well. Um, we have, for a lot of these studies, there would be um, a primary uh, physician, a uh, primary care physician in internal medicine. Um, might be kind of the person leading up the project. There might be faculty in psychology because there's a lot of aspects of psychology that are that are related to this. Uh, social work is important because there's a component of trying to reach out to these populations that might be at risk. Economists uh, would be involved in thinking about the cost effectiveness of some of the approaches. Epidemiologists trying to study the distribution and determinants of disease would be part of that uh, part of that team. Um, So it really is a very diverse group of individuals. And it's important for the statisticians and the others to really know the science to be able to make those contributions. So what what did you do
3: in your education and in your experiences that helped you get ready to be able to to function on such teams?
4: Well, I think one of the useful parts for me were – Uh, Having the opportunity to be engaged in capstone projects, summer research projects, where I really was able to hear from the investigators the question they wanted to answer and to try to figure out then how the analysis could be put together, how the design could be structured in a way to allow them to answer those questions. So it was really that involvement early on and having a background and knowledge and understanding in these areas that, that really made that much more possible.
0: I want to take a broader look at what we're talking about here. Um, you mentioned the ec- economists, and I don't think we talk or think much about the overall impact. If someone starts off in college and they're abusing alcohol, now they're out there in the workforce partying with their friends after work and, and things like that. What about the economics of all of this and how this is affecting our country, uh, the, the problem that we're seeing? So
4: the the impact of alcohol abuse and dependence on the economy has been conservatively estimated in the tens of billions of dollars, that this is a growing problem that has major societal impact. Um, th- this is something that the NIAAA provides estimates of, as well as these estimates of, you know, if you start drinking at 14 or 15 or 16, that, that the probability of being alcohol involved at a level that is impairing your work or family or other, other, other engagements that you have um, is upwards of 25, 30, 35%. Wow. Um, and so really thinking about trying to, to decrease that number, to decrease the risk, figure out approaches to move people to a much more moderate level of drinking is, is really an important national goal.
0: The three of us can all relate to the fact that sometimes on college campuses, uh, people who are having alcohol issues may have attendance problems in our classrooms. But we're talking, again, when you get to the workforce, it, it, that exacerbates the situation there as well.
4: Well, the inability to hold a job, you know, the the, the violence, which often is associated with alcohol um, for families, um, I think the the impact of that is really you know very very serious so it's beyond just missing some classes here and there uh, and george valiant had a study of harvard graduates from the you know early 20th century followed up into late adulthood and it was a fascinating glimpse you could see the issues that these men at that point it was only men being studied um, had when they were 70 and 80 were really seen when they were in their early 20s
3: if someone wanted to get get involved in doing this type of work you know, so if I have a student that's, that that hears this, this program and they go, oh, this is really interesting, really cool stuff, what would you recommend that they, they study if they're interested in being involved as a statistician, biostatistician statistician that's working in this area for preparing for this work? What would you encourage them to do?
4: Well, they, uh, you know, for any statistics um, – you know, researcher to be effective, they need a number of skills. obviously, they need to have a, a kind of a solid understanding of statistical concepts, these questions of of research design, observational randomized um, um, data, uh thinking about missing data, thinking about more sophisticated modeling to be able to follow people over time r- repeated measures models to think about multiple outcomes, how do you measure alcohol consumption It's not an easy yes no question. Um, which raises questions about multiple comparisons and multiplicity. So there's kind of the principles of statistics are really important. Certainly, they need to have the ability to... um, you know, analyze the data to be able to bring things together to answer the questions of that investigative team. So those computational data-related skills are really important. And it's also important for them to have some knowledge of the subject matter area. They need to have a background to be able to communicate at a high level with these scientists so they're not making some mistake or, you know, missing something. So they be part of the team. They need that broad knowledge.
0: I think one thing that we always mention on this show is the, the news uh, tie-in um, as to how, how this problem is reported and based on your study, how accurate the reporting is from, from stories that they hear in the press and, and reporting on the statistical stories like the ones that – or studies like the ones that you've done.
4: Well, it's, it's always a challenge with the media because you know, there needs to be kind of a new component um, and something really novel. The you know the the you know man bites dog type of <laughs> type of uh, type of approach. One of the challenges here is that this is such a serious chronic issue that we see that there's a, a tremendous number of our middle school students come into high school having drunk more than a sip of alcohol and setting patterns which then kind of proceed to college. Um, what I think is helpful is to be th- be looking and describing, innovative approaches, like the electronic screening and brief intervention, that's affordable, that can at least bring things to mind in, in, to students um, and their parents, kind of th- those around them, to see where their drinking relates to their peers, um, to see the impact of pricing on on their consumption. Um, you know, there have been some interesting studies that have been done, at certain stadia for sports events have been made alcohol-free or not, and they're kind of using those natural experiments to see what kind of impact there can be in the communities. More broadly, there's a, a whole field now that's developing of geospatial statistics. Where are the alcohol outlets? How do those change, you know, and how does that affect what's going on? So I think it's important to be thinking about this as a, as a long-term issue and to kind of be be uh, proposing approaches that really people can start to understand better.
0: John Baylor got time for one more question for Nick Horton.
3: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna channel Richard Campbell here for a minute. So it's a, <laughs> a question that he likes to to ask, and I'll ask I'll ask in his in his absence. You know, he he says I'm involved in in helping journalism students prepare for the future, and reporting statistics is part of what what they need to do. Reporting the results results of studies. What is it that you would suggest these students need to become better reporters? Of statistical studies and
4: to convey this to the public in a more effective way. I think that issue of communication is a really, really critical one. I've been very impressed by a number of journals, JAMA is one of them, that provide summaries for lay people that are really intended to be the communication approaches to kind of understand the strengths and limitations of any of the research studies that come out. Because each of them, none of them is going to be the definitive answer. Uh, to these these questions. So it's important that students, that journalism students, that citizens have the ability to read beyond the title of a paper, to be able to go beyond the abstract and to try to see what's being determined by them. When we look at these studies of Australia and New Zealand, we're seeing something like a 10% decline you know, at most in terms of what the, what's going on with drinking. That means that needs to be part of a solution. It's not suddenly saying that, boom, we have the answer.
0: Nick Horton of Amherst College. Thanks again for joining us on Stats and Stories to share your insights on this worldwide uh, public health concern about substance abuse. We appreciate it.
4: Great. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here.
0: If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, just send us an email, statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.